Michael, would you come on up and lead us through Matthews chapter 1 through 4? Thanks, Trevor. Good morning, everyone. As Trevor mentioned, my name is Michael Godshell, and it's an honor to be part of the teaching team this summer. Uh, my family and I have been here at All of Life for about a year and a half, and during that time, God has been radically transforming my life. And uh, one of the things that he's been highlighting to me is that he loves to use ordinary, unlikely, and sinful people to further his purposes in the world. Do you believe that? Do you believe he wants to use you? The author of Matthew wants us to believe. In these first four chapters, Matthew establishes Jesus as the promised king that all of history has been longing for. He does this by providing a detailed genealogy spanning 41 generations, highlighting Jesus' connection to key figures from the Old Testament. He begins his book with these words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the son of Abraham, God's chosen, uh, the, the man God chose to create a people exclusively set apart for his purposes. God promised Abraham that through his descendants, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And although we get glimpses of this global blessing throughout the life of uh, Israel's history, um, the complete fulfillment had yet to be realized. Jesus is, the, is also the son of David, the great king of Israel. Um, God had promised that one of, David's, uh, one of David's descendants would reign on Israel's throne forever. And although kings from David's line would hold the throne for a time, they ultimately failed uh, by turning to the gods of other nations and uh, leading to their conquest and exile. Jesus is also the Christ, a title that means anointed. It signifies that Jesus is the anointed one, the long-awaited Messiah, the, the fulfillment of God's promises. Uh, I like how the Bible Project summarizes it. They say, Jesus is the one who will bring the blessing of Abraham to the whole world. He's the royal son of David that all Israel has been waiting for. He's the one that the prophets wrote about and the psalmist sang about. He will be the king of Israel who blesses all the nations of the world, especially outsiders. Matthew expands on these ideas as he replays Israel's history through the life of Jesus. Through this retelling, Matthew demonstrates that Jesus is the new Israel through whom God establishes his kingdom on the earth. Just as Israel was called out of Egypt, Matthew portrays Jesus being called out of Egypt um, as his family flees to escape King Herod's wrath, linking Israel's oppression in Egypt to the killing of baby boys in Bethlehem. Just as Israel passes through the Red Sea by the power of God, we see Jesus pass through the baptismal waters in the power of God, anointed by the Holy Spirit. In contrast to Israel's rejection, Jesus pleases his father by obeying all the commands of the prophets, including his baptism with John, um, whom Jesus later identifies as the greatest prophet. And just as Israel was tested in the wilderness for 40 years before entering into God's promised land, Jesus is tested in the wilderness for 40 days before entering into the ministry God had prepared for him. However, unlike Israel, who succumbed 
to sin and Satan's power in the wilderness, Jesus triumphs over them, demonstrating that his kingdom is greater. Earlier I mentioned that Jesus is the king for outsiders, an important theme that Matthew expands on in these first four chapters. He emphasizes that Jesus' kingdom is open to ordinary, unlikely, and sinful people. In the genealogy of Jesus, we see that God has been using all types of people to move his plan forward in the world. Good kings, wicked kings, the rich and the poor, adulterers and prostitutes, even their enemies. Matthew also highlights that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, a small town that the prophet Micah calls too small to be among the clans of Judah. Later, his family would settle in Nazareth, an even more obscure town. Yet is it amongst these seemingly insignificant people and places that God's promised king would come and establish his kingdom. In stark contrast, the people that should have been leading the world to worship the promised savior, King Herod and the religious elite, the ones rejecting and opposing Jesus, were the ones rejecting and opposing Jesus' kingdom. John the Baptist preaches a simple message uh, that Jesus would later adopt. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, God's kingdom is here. Heaven is breaking through on the earth right now. Don't miss it. You don't need to be someone special to get in. You just need to be humble and desperate and needy to turn from your sin and turn to God. John is able to see right through the prideful religious, re- religious elite who are coming to him to be baptized, and he tells them, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. A stone by itself has no value. But God takes the seemingly worthless things of this world, the ordinary, weak, broken people of the world, and he makes them fit for his kingdom. And that's exactly what Jesus does as he begins his ministry in Galilee. He chooses, uh, or he calls ordinary blue-collared fishermen to be his first disciples. These men were highly unqualified. They had no theological training, no formal religious training of any kind. Yet Jesus would make them fishers of men and the power of the Holy Spirit. As Matthew concludes chapter 4, we see Jesus' ministry ramping up as desperate people flock to him. Jesus proclaims to them the good news that God's kingdom had arrived, but he also demonstrates that the good news, sorry, he demonstrates the good news by healing every disease, every sickness, and every demonic affliction. There would be nothing outside of his authority and power. Here's what the text says. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought to him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him. 
Heaven was breaking through on the earth. God's promised king and kingdom had come. Next up, uh, Jeremy is going to share with us on Matthew chapter 5 through 7, and we're going to watch his message on the screen here. Thank you. Hey, good morning, all of life, family uh, and guests. My name is Jeremy Stevens, and I have the privilege to um, run with you through uh, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Unfortunately, my family and I can't be there today, uh, but we really look forward to the coming weekends that we can gather and, and worship with you and continue through the book of Matthew. And so uh, let's look at Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Uh Matthew chapters 5 through 7, they are considered some of the most important um, setting of Scripture in in all of the Bible because of the weight and the teachings of Christ in this. And so um, we want to to look at the kingdom, and this is really Jesus' inaugural address. This is what the kingdom is like. He's revealing the kingdom to the crowd, to the disciples, and now to us as we read through it. And so one, one of the things I want to point out um, for you is that Matthew's intention throughout his uh, letter, his book, is that his gospel is that um, Jesus is the greater Moses. And so Jesus actually brings a, a, a deepening of understanding for us into uh, the intentions of the law and what the law was created for, um, and also just expounds on uh what he expects of us in the kingdom. And so um, in chapter five, Jesus, Jesus begins by telling the disciples and the crowd who the kingdom is for. And so I really want to point this out because this is what, as we read through the Beatitudes, the blessed are's, this is what the kingdom feels like. This is what the kingdom sounds like. This is what the kingdom looks like. This is what the kingdom tastes like. This is the kingdom. And, and, and he, he, I really want to point out this is the kingdom is meant for. It's not against, but it's for. And so the kingdom is for you. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And so, uh, as we move through the Beatitudes and, and who the kingdom is for, and then he moves us into a body of teaching uh, of kingdom ethics. And so he gives us structure. Jesus gives us structure how to live. He gives us boundaries in life and he gives us expectations. These are things that Jesus expects of us as a follower, as a disciple, as an apprentice of his. Um, and he teaches us about anger and murder and heart issues. He teaches us about lust and adultery, about marriage and divorce, about revenge and love. And so as we move into chapter six and he continues working through some ethics, there's also these heart motives that he really comes into and really wants us to grasp hold of. And so we have expectations given to us. This is, this is something that is just a given in following Jesus. We have expectations of giving to the poor and the needy and blessing them. We have expectations of praying and being in communion with the Father and that kind of relationship. And then also fasting about um, standing with the poor and empathizing with the poor and also just realizing that um, food is not everything, but um, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
And so really want to point out though, it's not about giving to the poor. It's not about how, how to pray. It's not about when you fast, but it's about the why. It's about your heart motive. It's about why you're doing it. And Jesus answers. He actually moves us into the why. And that is because of the kingdom. It's for the kingdom and the king's sake that this is why we are doing this. It's, it's about the treasure we have in the kingdom. It's not about the, uh, where moth and rust will destroy, um, but it's actually about taking us back into the garden, about the intended purpose of man and woman, living in relationship, living as one under God's rule, God's reign, uh, as he rules over the hearts of men and women. And so our treasure is the king. Everything we want, everything we desire, everything we need is found in the kingdom. And so in relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in his, the Imago Dei, uh, those created in the image of God, that is where we find blessing. That is where we find satisfaction. And that is where we find our friendship with each other. And so we move into chapter 7. And this is where uh, Jesus lands the plane. And this teaching, this section really uh, culminates with some warnings, some encouragement, and then another stern encouragement. And so he warns us about judging others and what that can do, what that can do for our own hearts and how he sees that. Um, and then he encourages us uh, about asking and seeking and knocking and that we have access to the Father when we go to him. And then he, earn, and I, I like this, but he ends with a stern encouragement. There's wisdom in, uh, in this that everyone who hears these words of mine, this is, this is where he ends his sermon, so to speak, that he ends with everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man that built his house upon sand. So I really uh, want to emphasize that Jesus says anyone that doesn't put them into practice He's given us all of this, this teaching, all of the vision of what the kingdom is like, who it's for, and kingdom ethics. And then he lands with this. Don't be the foolish man who built his house on the sand. Don't be the foolish woman who built their house on the sand. But build it on the rock, the foundation that is found in Christ and his teachings. And you will, as, as the waters buffet you, as, as the floods rise, you will stand and be okay. So, uh, uh, the scripture just ends with this. Jesus teaches with authority and all the crowd is amazed because of this authority. And so as we move into chapter eight, uh, brother Dave gets to come up here. Pastor Dave gets to come up here and um, continue in Jesus just blessing and really um, expounding again on the kingdom. And so um, church, I love you. Uh, I can't wait to worship with you again. And um, I hope this blesses you in Jesus name. Amen. Thanks, Jeremy. Pretty good there. All right. This is like one of those times when you say, man, I wish I would have went first. <laughs> so some of the big takeaways that I got uh, going through Matthew chapters 8 through 12 was faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus. Um, we also see that having faith in Jesus has a cost, which can sometimes leave even the most faithful of us having doubt in our faith. 
But the faithfulness we see in Jesus as we go through good times and bad times in our own lives reassures us and far outweighs the costs and the doubts that we have at times. Jesus' authoritative power of the Messiah is on full display as we see, some say nine, I see ten miracle stories in, in chapter eight and nine and ten. Um, Jesus demonstrates kingdom power as he heals the lepers, he heals the sick, the paralytics, various afflictions, which he even resurrects a 12-year-old girl. Um, Jesus casts out demons, showing his power over Satan's strongholds. Through Jesus' healing power, we can see how much he loves and cares for his people. Um, Faith is seen time and time again in those miracles, and I think the greatest story is the story of the centurion, who, being a Roman centurion, he was like on the outsides, like he was even probably lower than the Gentiles. And he comes and having faith in Jesus, asks for healing of his paralytic servant. Where in Matthew 8.10, Matthew says, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, no one in Israel have I seen such faith. The cost of following Jesus is high. As Jesus names and assembles his 12 disciples, giving them healing authority, the, the authority to cast out demons, and sending him out to the lost sheep of, of uh, Israel to tell the good news that the kingdom of, of heaven is at hand. But as he does that, he warns the 12 disciples they will be prosecuted, persecuted. Matthew ten sixteen. Behold, I am sending out. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents, and innocent as doves. I had to look that one up. Wise as serpents. So he basically wants them to be intellectually cunning. So be smart. Be wise. Um, not like the snake in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> Jesus himself suffers for being our Messiah. The scribes accuse him of blasphemy after he heals a paralytic. And the Pharisees conspire against Jesus when he heals a man with with withered hands on the Sabbath. The persecution is the cost for Jesus. And ultimately, we see that that cost results in him being on the cross, which ultimately becomes our greatest gift. Jesus warns that the cost of following him will be high. As we see in several times uh, during a couple chapters, that it will pit brother against brother and family member against family member. Um, But I assure you, the cost of following Jesus has a greater reward, and that greater reward far outweighs the cost. Doubt. We see doubt. We see doubt in the disciples. We, we see doubt in people that we don't even think, like when we think of our own relationship with Christ and our own salvation, like I haven't seen miracles. I haven't seen, well, maybe I have. I'll talk, we'll talk about that later. Um, but when we read the Bible and we see people like this, the disciples and John the Baptist having doubt, that causes us to think, man, as we go through cost of having faith in Jesus, that, that doubt is real. We're not alone. 
when the disciples cross the Sea of Galilee with Jesus, um, a, sea, a sea storm arises, howling winds and throwing the boat around, water in the boat. And basically the, the disciples, I mean, they're, they're fear. And they have doubt. They ask Jesus, do something. And, and Jesus says, why are you afraid? Oh, you have little faith. And again, this is one of the miracles. So Jesus calms the storm. We don't have to worry. Nothing happened here. And then you have John the Baptist. Um, he's imprisoned. He's like the last Old Testament prophet. And he's, he's in prison, paying the cost of following Jesus. But even him, through a messenger, he sends a message to Jesus. Are you the one to come, or shall we look for another? I mean, really, where does this doubt come from? This is the same John the Baptist who, when Jesus came to be baptized, he looked at Jesus and said, you should be baptizing me. And John proceeded to baptize him, and when, when Jesus came out of the water, the heavens opened up to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and come to rest on Jesus. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I mean, we've seen plenty of baptisms and I don't think we've seen anything like that. And I'm pretty sure if I saw something like that, I wouldn't think, oh, he may not be Jesus. But anyways, he has doubt, right? A verse that, that gives me hope as I have doubt um, When we think about how hard it is sometimes to speak the gospel, to speak the good news to other people, we have doubt. We worry about our performance. We worry about we're not going to say the right thing. Um, but we have to remember that it, it's all Jesus. It's not us. It's us saying the words and Jesus doing the work. And in Matthew 10, 19, 20, do not be anxious on how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you, what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is I who speak through you, the Father speaking through us. In summary, my faith in Jesus has a cost. The cost is giving up worldly affections that have short-term value and are ultimately unfulfilling. They don't really satisfy my needs. I know I'm not alone when I sometimes have doubts in my faith, um, and that comes with the cost, because the cost of knowing Jesus sometimes costs you friendships. Sometimes it costs you your own personal time, right? And you have doubts, like, why am I doing this? But the good news, and this is truly the good news, is that the cost of accepting Jesus as our Lord and Savior, it has a reward beyond measure. When we repent and ask Jesus to become our Lord and Savior, he forgives us of our sin, and we start to build relationship. Building that relationship takes time, and it takes us intentionally seeking him in relationship, in prayer, and in the word. But as we do that, we, we truly see how good God is and how faithful he is to us. Um, because for some of us, and there's only a few maybe, when you ask and receive God into your heart, like the transformation is quick, Right? And you turn away from sin, and you start to increase, increasingly seek God and, and seek his ways. But for most of us, um, it's a journey. It's a journey of failing and repenting and paying the cost and having doubt.
But through our faith in Jesus, we come to understand how much God loves us and, and just the grace that we see, receive from him. We, we sin and we repent and we ask for forgiveness and we feel that grace and that love from him that nothing else gives us. The reward of Jesus is not only this thing that's like way off in the future that, yeah, we, we understand it is an eternity with Jesus, that some, a good father that loves us. But the thing that I, that I want to impress upon you is just, it's for today. It's for today. The second you receive Jesus Christ in your heart, your relationship with a good father starts right that second. And so through the doubt, through the cost, Jesus is with us. I want to welcome up my brother Rick. Thanks, Dave. Good morning. <clears throat> my name is Rick Friesen. I'm one of the body here at All of Life, and um, I get to talk about the uh, chapters that are coming up, the things that we're going to be talking about, uh, not so much review, but looking forward into this summer. And so um, I'm just by way of, of uh, communicating this. Um, let me just flip my notes. I just wanted to mention, uh, again, taking everything that everybody has said, just quick review that... Ultimately, uh, the book of Matthew is written by a person. It's written by Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples. It's written as a way to communicate truth that he saw himself, things that he experienced, things that he watched happen. Uh, his audience is to Israel, to the Jews. He's writing specifically uh, to them about issues that they know about and are familiar with because of their access to what we call the Old Testament scriptures. Matthew's writing approach is thematic. It's not chronological, so sometimes that's a little bit confusing as you read it. He takes chunks of things that happened and puts them together by theme, not necessarily in a chronological order like some of the other gospel writers, and I think that that's important to recognize. Matthew ultimately is telling a story, one that we will be jumping into the middle of, hence our review. This story, like all stories, has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It has a cast of characters. It has a set of basic facts about what has happening. What happens is set in real time in history. There is tension between the good that God intends and the evil in the world and those that oppose him. Between a picture of what it's like when God is reigning versus what we see now. Versus those that take offense at Jesus and those that follow him. Matthew is telling about Jesus, about Messiah, his mission, his purpose, his power, his kingly proofs of his identity as he accomplishes his plan. Ultimately, Matthew is showing us that we are being uh, shown Jesus as the promised king. He is the promised king. He is bringing his kingdom. Jesus is inaugurating his kingly plan for the restoration of all things. Now, how many times have you heard king and kingdom this morning? And you're going to hear it a whole bunch more. Kingdom really is the central theme of all of Scripture. It is the central aspect of the Old Testament, of the prophets. It starts as a promise in Genesis that God will correct the effects of the fall. And it works through individuals. It works through generations. It works through kings. It works through the poor it works through every aspect 
as God works in history. Its central point of that kingdom story is Jesus coming to earth to rescue us by way of death on a cross and resurrection, forgiveness for sins. But the central point, the central theme of Scripture overall is the kingdom. We actually can see that Matthew wants us to see this very well because he starts off in Matthew 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus, as he begins his ministry, Matthew records him saying, Jesus began to preach in Matthew 4, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus sends out his disciples, the 12, and he tells them to go into Israel And what does he tell them to say? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without pay, give without pay. The book of Acts opens with Jesus resurrected. In verse 3, in the first chapter of Acts, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about what? The kingdom of God. And Acts closes with Paul. In Acts 28, 30, he lived uh, there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. It's the central theme all through the Gospels and what came after the Gospels in the foundation of the church. What is happening with this kingdom? The kingdom of God started as God's plan in eternity past. It was set in motion at creation Kingdom rule of the earth was delegated to and intended for Adam and humanity to rule, but Adam failed to rule in God's way. That failure brought rebellion, sin, suffering, failure, and separation in our relationship with God. But Jesus' kingdom plan ultimately undoes and reverses Adam's failure and brings forgiveness for sins, restored relationship with God, and is the ultimate restoration of everything, all things against the backdrop of uh, the curse of sin and its consequences. Whatever sin broke, the kingdom of God restores. The kingdom of God is God's reign through God's people over God's place. The kingdom of God and the blessings it represents is the ultimate reality. It is the intention of what God has established in eternity past being brought to life over time and history with us. The world we live in now is a blip in the big scheme of things compared to the ultimate plan of God for his people in creation. It is the gospel of the kingdom, and I just want to point that out, that the gospel, which means good news, it is the good news of the kingdom In chapter 9, after we just heard Dave talk about Jesus' miracles, there's a summation of everything that he was doing as he intervened against the natural progression of the curse of sin. He used his power in ways that symbolized all of the aspects in which he would be fixing things. But he said in, in chapter 9, a summary of that those two chapters, and Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction, the gospel of the kingdom. In chapter 11, when John is questioning what's happening, 
Jesus said, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. Good news. It is Matthew's point to help us understand this. Matthew uses kingdom language more than any other biblical writer, and perhaps the greatest concentration of those kingdom references are happening in the passages that we will be looking at this summer, chapter 13 through about 18. Matthew opens with Jesus' kingly bloodline and describes him, uh, describes uh, how there was immediate earthly and spiritual opposition to his arrival, but that is contrasted with the fact that Emmanuel, God with us, is a statement of good news. Again, it was the cry of John the Baptist, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is right here. Literally, as Jesus was before them, it was literally at his hand. Matthew in the Beatitudes again records Jesus In his own words, describing how through his power he is transforming the lives of his kingdom ambassadors to more closely reflect the king and kingdom they represent in their attitudes and actions towards others. And he relays that there is blessings in the kingdom. Blessed is the one, blessed is the one, blessed is the one, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew also shows us a king who has come in power. He wants us to notice his miracles are done in a way that show his absolute sovereignty and authority over all aspects of the creation he rules over, the natural elements, sickness, living tissue, spiritual demons, life and death, and even uh, uh, cosmic evil and the forgiveness of sin itself, all representative of how this king will ultimately be saving the world and everyone and everything in his kingdom from the effects of the fall, the consequences of sin on his creation. However, as Matthew is telling his story, there is a significant shift As we transition from chapter 12, where uh, Dave's section was ending, and we go into 13, what we're going to be looking at this summer. Up until around chapter 12, Matthew has been showing who uh, this Jesus is, both King and Messiah. He actually relates to us how Jesus was revealing himself in power and reasoning from the Old Testament scriptures. But there is an abrupt change, a jarring change, as Jesus continues to reveal who he actually is, the opposition to him actually grows. Even as the religious leaders are being shown their need to repent in contrast to their self-professed self-righteousness, assuming that their birth would give them entrance to the kingdom of heaven because they were sons of Abraham, or their inherent morality following their version of their own religious laws, they decide to close their eyes and hearts to everything that they have seen Jesus do. They conspire in chapter 12 to destroy him. In 1238, even though everything Jesus has done is well known in public, it all gets Ignored. They sit in judgment of Jesus and his works and determine that the evidence is not worth being considered. They demand a new sign that will satisfy them. By the way, we learn later that it wasn't just them, but the crowds also are not satisfied to accept Jesus at his word, his kingdom at his word. They want more circus tricks when they realize that Jesus is this great magician that can feed them and fill their bellies. From now on, in chapter 13, we see that Jesus enters a time where he teaches in parables. And I think it's really important because that's what's coming up. That we understand why Jesus teaches in parables. A parable is a story, an analogy, or a comparison that is told to reveal truth. But unlike proverbs or fables or other stories with a teaching element to them that we might think of, 
The key to understanding the point of the story is not included in the story itself. From this point on, Jesus only shares the meaning of the parables with his closest followers. We can actually see that shift and hear Jesus say why he does it in chapter 13, 10, where he relays that the hardness of their hearts, the people will not hear him. It is unfortunate. Jesus weeps over it. How I wish I could gather all of Israel. He calls Israel the lost sheep. But Matthew records that all of those that were with him, Jesus did explain the meanings of the parables, his teachings. And we get to be the fly on the wall as Matthew records for us Jesus' teaching, and we get to lean into that teaching. We get to see all the times as we're leaning in, that Jesus is explaining the point of the parables, more information about the kingdom. Seven times, Jesus introduces the parables with the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus, again, in these passages, shows the value and blessing, the good news about his kingdom. And I'll just read in chapter 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then his joy, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Imagine if you found buried treasure in a rented lot. What would you do to get that treasure? That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Each of the parables demands a response. What will you do with this information about the kingdom? This shift in Jesus' ministry is because of the overall response to him is one of hard-heartedness and self-righteousness. It is one of opposition and rising conflict. We know the end of the story. Ultimately, Jesus' ministry does turn and people reject him. And he is going to go to the cross. And this is that transition period that we start to see that uh, ramping up. It's turning from a story of joy and jubilation in the Messiah King has come, look and see his proofs and demonstrations of his power to that of the people rejecting him to the point of plotting and eventually killing him. The next several chapters record moments and snippets and snapshots of the growing conflict of the people, their desires, and Jesus' teachings. We see the people growing in their rejection of him. We see that even his own family, the people of his own town reject him at the end of chapter 13, There are many points and counterpoints, snippets, where we see that. But we actually see that there is faith as well. It's not all bad news, and not everyone rejects them. In fact, there are people that are even non-Jews that want to be a part of Jesus' kingdom. A Canaanite woman comes to him and says, that her daughter was suffering, oppressed by a demon. And Jesus said, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but she came and knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. And he said, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And by the way, that word dog there wasn't an insult. It would be like the family puppy. He wasn't being harsh. He was just saying, the nature of my ministry is to Israel right now. But she answered and said, it is not right to, t uh, sorry, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus said, oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. 
You think we'll see this lady in heaven? I think we will. We see that Jesus confronts in public and reveals himself in private. This pattern is repeated until we see Jesus telling his disciples in chapter 16 his full purpose. That's where he reveals to his disciples in chapter 16 that his plan is to go to Jerusalem. He will be crucified. He will die. We're left with some questions and implications about this king and his kingdom. Who is he? What is his kingdom like? How do we enter his kingdom? And if I could sum up everything that we've talked about, this is the gospel of good news. This kingdom is good news for everyone that comes to Jesus. How do we enter it? We ask. That's it. Jesus, please, make me part of your kingdom. Help me. I am helpless. We come with nothing but the sin that we bring. The Canaanite woman wasn't even part of the nation of Israel. She brought nothing to the table, and yet she asked Jesus, help me. In John, it says that Jesus is faithful, and anyone that comes to him, he will not cast out. And so we ask. That's it. It's how we come into the kingdom of God.